Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, yeah, like one of the architects, there's no other way to describe this guy, Glenn Matlock of, of the Spectres, of the Rich Kids, of an incredible solo record on Creation Records, but... For many people, most notably, I should say, of the Sex Pistols. More on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to that email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham, guest booker extraordinaire, all around, all around, uh, you know, quarantine superhero, Tristan Abraham, my bro. And he will get the message to me. He also runs a Facebook page and an Instagram page. Both of those are under Turned Out of Punk. There's also me on various forms of social media, at Left for Damien. You can support this show by telling all your friends about it and then subscribing to it on your platform of choice. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the Patreon. All the people over there at the Patreon that are, you know, sticking around and, and checking out the footnotes that are getting put up there and and everything. I really, really appreciate that um, from everyone doing that right now. Uh, also to the Vans people, Vans again has said they will support this show going into this whole thing that we're dealing with. So much love to Vans for supporting the show and continue to support the show on that front as well. All right. I think that's it. Um, I hope you're all doing okay. Everyone's uh, indoors and safe and healthy. Uh, so that's all I can hope right now. That's all we can hope. But uh, speaking of Hoping, I'm hoping you're as excited for today's show as I am. Today on the show, Glenn Matlock. Glenn Matlock, of course, is the original, one of the original architects of the Sex Pistols, but the original bass player of the Sex Pistols, infamously replaced by a non-playing bass player in Sid Vicious. Uh, but Glenn wrote a lot of the best, biggest songs for the Pistols, some of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, but then he went on and had a whole other career in music afterwards, first with the Rich Kids, then with the Spectres, and then most recently doing solo stuff. And he, he's a fantastic musician. And I, I really feel like he's one of the great songwriters to emerge from that punk rock explosion. So it's a real honor to finally have him on the show. Shout out to my buddy, Adam Sewell, who will also be coming on the show in the near future for helping me set this up. And of course, Tristan and, and the like, because this is a dream one. This is a dream one for me. Uh, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Glenn Matlock on Turned Out a Punk. Let's go. Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Damien, hi, it's my pleasure. Well, as I was just telling you off air, it's, uh, I met you briefly years and years ago, and it was a huge honor to briefly talk to you that day, but I didn't get to do any was, sort of... Was you, was you the guy in the stilettos and the fishnets? Uh, probably. I had definitely had my shirt off, and at that time I was about 330 pounds, so oh, okay. I, I probably would have left an impression in that oh, regard. that Damien. That Damien, exactly. <laughs> um, but Glenn, i got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever heard the term? Yeah, the first time I ever heard the term punk was in the James Cagney movie, You Dirty Punk, mm -hmm. kind of thing. And then um, it wasn't the best, the best kind of term, although I didn't really know what that meant. And that's probably when I'm like 8, 10, 12, 13 years old. And then when I started playing 
with Stephen Paul even before John came on the scene, we was aware of an album called Nuggets. And that the band on that, um, I think Greg Shaw put it out, and it was like kind of West Coast bands like the Strawberry, you know, the Chocolate Alarm Clock and the 13th Floor Elevators and things like that, and they were deemed punk. And um, we thought, well, well, that's not us. And then didn't really <laughs> think any more about it. And then we did some shows, and then we were caught in some journalists who were like young journalists at the time. You know, they were trying to break through. There was a guy called John Inman, who's Canadian, actually, who lived in London and wrote for Sounds magazine. And there was a woman called Caroline Kuhn who wrote for Melody Maker, and they were mates. And one weekend, you know, once we'd started to make a few waves, they both did reviews which came out at the same time calling us punk. And we'd never had that applied to us at all at that time. And I remember reading the, the, um, the big article with John, Simon saw this punk and he, he hated it. You know, we only thought, you know, punk was a derogatory, derogatory term. And if you look it up in the dictionary, it's something to do with who does what to whom for people who are in prison. Mm. So we weren't too happy about it, you know, <laughs> but there we were, we were punks and we never kind of got, got rid of it. Although I do remember saying to John, well, reading through all this thing, it was like your normal kind of journalistic flannel. I said, I don't quite get the number of, of this all. And he said, I do. He says, it says he, it says that we're the first. So there you go. I, going back to what you said about getting to the Nuggets compilation, I think actually, wasn't it, I mean, Greg Shaw put it out, but I think it was even curated by Lenny Kay, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't think of that, that, that name, but yeah. So were you guys aware of Patti Smith and, and that kind of stuff that was going on in New York, uh, you know, like around that same sort of time that you yeah, guys Maybe were not Patti Smith so much, but one of the things that had happened was that Malcolm McLaren had been going back, this is really early days, had been going backwards and forwards to New York because he had a clothes store and he would go over there and um, try and buy sort of 50s clothes because he had a teddy boy shop. And I've since found out later that he went to a clothes sort of um, convention and bumped into somebody who started taking him out. And the person he bumped into was Sylvain Sylvain. Oh, wow, yeah. Right? Yeah. And he met up with those guys. And I, I said to Sylvain, because I did a tour, and in fact, fact, I think the last time I came to Canada, I was with Sylvain. We did a sort of double-letter acoustic show. And I said, well, what on earth was you doing there? And he said, well, I used to have a blue jean shop. He said, you know what? I sold a pair of dungarees to Janice Joplin. He was really <laughs> proud of it. That's amazing. So they'd be friend, they'd be friend of Malcolm, and they took him out to some of the clubs where things were going on, mm-hmm. you know, maybe like the early Ramones and and um, the Heartbreakers, but when Richard Hell was in the band, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It was all a bit of a crossover period because the, the dolls were on the cusp of breaking up which Malcolm helped them do, and then Johnny Funders did that. And the early Heartbreakers had Richard Hell on them. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, there's that black and white picture where they all look like they got been shot. shot. Yeah. yeah, but it's, back, it's ketchup, really. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but Malcolm brought back this thing, which was just a list of titles, and I didn't really know what it was at the time. Malcolm used to have a pinball in his shop, and he pinned it on the wall. And it was a list of songs. And looking back, I didn't realise what it was at the time. It was probably a set list. And the first song on it was open brackets in the arms of, closed brackets, Venus de Milo. And I was at art school at the time, and I knew damn well that the statue of the Venus de Milo by David, Mm -hmm. the arms had fallen off. So I thought that was a bit weird. And the next song was Blank Generation. 
And I thought, ooh, and that kept me thinking, that's kind of sowed the seeds for writing Pretty Vacant. But the thing was, all those bands that we'd seen a few pictures of and heard about hadn't made any records. Mm -hmm. So we had no idea what they sounded like. And the only person that we did hear a record of, except it wasn't a record, we, Malcolm was friends with this guy called Nick Kent, who was like the Lester Bangs of England. He wrote, was the star writer for the NME. Absolutely. And there, and there was a shop just down the road called Granny Takes a Trip, where like the Rolling Stones and Faces would get their dandy fashion clothes from. Mm -hmm. And he would hang out there, and there was other stuff that went on under the counter there, which I'm sure you can put two and two together and find out what was going on. But he gave us a cassette tape, which had half a, had about six songs on it. And one of those six songs was Roadrunner by the Modern Lovers. But we didn't even, we hadn't even heard of them. And it turns out this Nick Kent was friends with, um, oh, I forgot his name now, the Welsh bloke who played violin in Velvet Underground. John Cow, right. He was mates with them. And John Cow had produced the Modern Lovers album. He'd, had got given a outtakes cassette, but the, the album didn't come out for a year. But that's why we did Roadrunner because we'd never uh, heard anything like it. I've always so wondered. we was really on the cutting edge of the right place to be in London at the time. I guess going back to London, you know, you're going to St Martin's College in 1974. There's there's a lot of stuff happening around that time, like you know, be it Doctor Feelgood, be it like the you know, the pretty things. Be well, well, there, well, there was and there wasn't. You know, there was like pub rock. There, there was like all your kind of prog rock bands down Wembley and then there was pub rock. And pub rock wasn't great, really. Mm -hmm. But there were a couple of sort of diamonds in a rough in it. One being Dr. Feelgood, the other one being Kilburn the High Roads, which was Ian Dury's band before he formed the Blockheads. And maybe the Stranglers, but the rest of them were trite, really. Although there was one band, and I wrote a book, and this is in my book. And what we would do, we would go right across town to see some band that sounded interesting. And I remember going to somewhere in East London with Bernard Rhodes, who went on to manage The Clash, because he was one of the people in the scene, to see this band called The Teenage Rebels. And we went to see them, and they were dreadful. And Bernard's confronted the singer afterwards and he said what's going on he said you're not teenagers and you're certainly not <laughs> rebellious and the, the singer turned around to Bernard and he said well that's it we're rebelling against teenagers <laughs> <laughs> and Bernard was speechless but you know he was on the lookout for anything that was kind of on the same wavelength as ourselves but it wasn't even really called punk at that stage you know no. this is really early days but yeah, there were a few good things, the, the, the pub rock thing. But mainly it seemed to be older guys who'd been to the States once and then knew how six days on the road, but I'm going to see my baby tonight went, you know. <laughs> well, like, where did you kind of find yourself? Like, I've, you know, I've heard you talk in previous interviews, of course, about being into Motown and being into like The Who and stuff like that. But like, what kind of concerts were you gravitating towards? You know? Um... Well, those are pub rock things I started going to because mm -hmm. they were accessible. Big fan of the Faces. I went to see the Faces three times. Um, and that was my common ground with Stephen Paul. You know, that's what got me into the band. So in later years, I, I did some shows with the Faces. And it was a band that I st stood in front of the mirror when I was 14 years old. And the last gig I did with them, 
it wasn't with Roger Stewart, but it was Ronnie and Kenny and Mac. We we had Lonely Fuji Festival in front of 50,000 people. <laughs> so that was a buzz. So I liked them, but they were big by then. But one of the big shows I did go and see, I went to see them at Wembley, and I'd heard about this band, the New York Dolls. It's all a bit mixed up, in you know, because I worked for Malcolm for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And he'd been going on about this band playing at a place called Beaver, which was a big department store. But they had a club up the stairs. I was a bit too young to go kind of to places like that and wasn't really in with the people. Malcolm had been going on about it. Anyway, I'd saved up my pocket money, went with my girlfriend at the time. When I was about 15 and a half, 16, I went to see the faces. And lo and behold, the band that supported them was the New York Dolls. And that was the original band with Billy Dole. Oh, wow, yeah. It was about a week before he OD'd. Mm -hmm. And that was quite a sea change moment for me. You know, I mean, that must have been... I don't know, 74, I don't know, something around and my chronology gets mixed up. So I like <laughs> that kind of rock and roll thing. I liked Mock the Hoople. I liked um, another band I used to go and see quite a lot, who John actually liked, is the Sensational Alex Harvey band. Oh, great band, yeah. They're fantastic players and put on a show, you know. Mm-hmm. And the three guys, you know, when they stood at the front and stared everybody out because they're average Glaswegians, it was kind of quite heavy, you know. What about a band like the Groundhogs? Like, how did they fit in, or did they fit in at all? Um, I kind of like Cherry Red. Um, you know, when I was at school, people were allowed to bring their records in, and there was a great album going around called, well, it seemed good at the time, called Son of Gut Bucket. It was a sampler. Mm-hmm. might have been on Atlantic, and... And their track was on that. And then they had a hit with Cherry Red. But I can't remember if I saw them or not. But I liked them. You know, it's like every duty blues band. And the album. And on this sampler, it would have pictures of the albums that you could then go and buy. And I think the album they was advertising was Thank Christ for the Bomb. A great record. One of my favorites. I wouldn't know that backwards but there was another track on it as well Ainsley Dunbar's Retaliation mm-hmm. sugar, sugar on the Line and they was all dressed as teddy boys in this tiny little sort of thumbnail picture on the back of the sleeve I think they were quite good you know and then then you start making connections and one of the other records I really liked about that, that time was Bowie's album Pinups you know where he covers all the beat groups from the 60s and um, Ainsley Dunbar plays drums on it you know so it still kind of get a, gets a bit gets a bit mixed up in your mind. But what really influenced me more than anything else was the fantastic thing that we had in England called Pirate Radio before we had a national radio station. And there was all these boats off just outside British territorial waters playing pop music. And that's how the Kinks and the Small Faces and Who and the Yardbirds and the Stones came through. <laughs> yeah. And it was great, you know, And you, when you were kids. And I'm talking about when I'm 12, 11, 12, all the kids... Had for Christmas a little transistor radio that they would put under their pillow at night, you know, and tune into Radio Luxembourg or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then not long after that, we had a fantastic TV show called Ready Steady Go, which was probably the best show, rock show in the world ever. Hands down. And it, would, and it would have all those bands on it, plus Dusty Springfield was on it a lot. And I think after the first series, she did well in America, went to America. America discovered Tamla Motown as stacks and insisted that the, the, the TV, the show brought these people over. 
you know, and then you'd, you'd have Journey of Water and the All-Stars on and the Supremes and Smokey Robinson playing live. It was fantastic. So I dug all of that, you know, and I got into Tumblr Motown and, yeah, there you go. But then again, getting into the faces, and when I was a young kid, my uncle who was about 10 years older than me, my mum's younger brother, gave me his old 78s. He'd been a bit of a teddy boy and moved on from that. And all these old 78 records, which were like, Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and um, uh, the Big Popper and stuff like that. They all came in cardboard sleeve records with stitching down the side, right, mm-hmm. which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I remember once I went down to Portobello Road and went in this record store, which actually I found out later was Rock On Records, which is the one that's featured in the song by... Um, Thin Lizzy. I get my records from the Rock On stall. It was that very place. I didn't know at the time. I found a record in a cardboard sleeve with stitching down the side. And it was The Faces' second album, Long Player. And I didn't make the connection with The Small Faces, although I loved The Small Faces. Took it home, played it. You know, and then they're doing, you know, they're doing Big Bill Brownsy stuff. And, you know, I got into them a bit more. And then they're... You know, on one of Rod Stewart's albums, they, 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 I'm Losing You, it was a Temptation song. So I started taking the Temptations a bit more seriously because they were a bit cabaret when you saw them on the telly, you know, with their unified dancing. Mm-hmm. And they, mm-hmm. that kind of opened the door to lots of things. But then there were other things going on at the time. You know, the Stooges played, I never saw them, but they played uh, um, the Scala around about that time. There was a buzz about that. Raw Power came out, the Dolls had made a record. Everything was in this kind of soup, you know, and every and everything that we like, Steve, Steve Paul, Steve liked rock to music. Early rock to music were great. Paul loved them. We both like liked, liked um, uh, Tamla. Steve kind of loved the Faces, and then really liked New York Dolls and wanted to be Johnny Thunders, but a bit too much. Mm. But then John came along, and he hated all that stuff, and he liked Van de Graaff, Generator, and and. and Peter Hamill and things like that. I'm one of those people that just like, yeah, believes that the sound that you guys came up with is a, a perfect confluence of time and space. And like you're saying, like all these sounds are there. Like even, even the Motown stuff is there in the way it's well, so do you know what? I, I One of the last gigs that we did with the Pistols, it's probably the last gig ever we played, was in Spain. And um, Duff McCagan was there because he was playing with one of his other bands. He's got a band called Loaded or something like that. He was on the bill. And he came and watched us. And he said to me after the gig, he said, God, blind me, Glenn. He said, you put all these Tamla Motown bass rhymes in the songs. I didn't realise that was how they were supposed to go. He said, it was great. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, and another thing, if you listen to the original Spunk tapes, which I'm on. Mm-hmm. I got that album. Uh no feelings, which is Steve's song, really. Based on I play, it's a tribute to Trevor Boulder. You know, hang on to yourself. <laughs> uh, oh, it's amazing. Oh, oh, you mentioned you keep mentioning you know Teddy Boy stuff, and obviously Let It Rock was a, a, a Teddy Boy shop. Um, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, culture. but not only not only was it a Teddy Boy shop, it attracted every weirdo who turned out to be a mover and shaker in London on a Saturday afternoon. That was the hangout. That was the hippest place to be in London at the time. I never knew it when I started working. It was just a vibe about the place. But that's where everybody met, and that was the the epicenter of things. 
Yeah, like it feels like that's such a a culture that like obviously it's influenced by American culture greatly, but it's such a unique culture to 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 England where it's something that's like you said, like you got the records from your uncle, like it's almost like a generational thing that was passed down. Um, eventually, it's kind of being presented. Well, I, I mean, I I have a theory of music. I mean, you look at Green Day, mm-hmm. and then you look at kind of Two Tone. And maybe you look at us, you know, but I think people end up playing the kind of music that they first listened to when they were probably 10, 12, but were too young to do anything about it. And when they do pick up a guitar, they go back to what they first dug. Yeah. No, you're right. It, it, it's something like, almost like it's, it's imprinted in your musical DNA at that point. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Going back to like, you know, the time, like you're getting first into music, where were you buying records? Like was, you know, you mentioned uh, the one record store, but like, was it Woolworths at first or? Well, no, next door to Woolworths, there used to be in Holvesden, there used to be a, 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 a shop that sold white goods, you know, like washing machines and things like that. Okay. Yeah. And you'd, you'd go there with your mum and dad on Saturday afternoon while they're doing the shopping and they would go and pay the rental for your TV that you got from them. And those places had all these little pegboard um, shelves, you know, little cubicles on the wall, and they would sell the top 30 or top 40. And I bought my first record that I actually saved up, bought myself, which was the Kinks record. You know, you already got me. Around about the same time, I got the Twist and Shout EP, around about that kind of time. And I think it was more likely three shillings and sixpence for the EP and one and eleven for the single. It's like you said, where you're like your theory about going back to the music you first discover, like not that, you know, at all the sex will sound like the kinks or the Beatles, but there's almost like that return to that kind of musical not simplicity, because that's like saying that what you're doing well, is Well no, is it, it was for me. Yeah, you know, my yardstick was and still is that three and a half minute song, you know, yeah. with an intro, the verse, maybe a middle eight and a chorus. And, and a good verse. Can't beat that. Was there any of that kind of prog stuff though that you like had time for, or was it all to you just like such a you know? A... No, some of it was all right. I actually bought Aqualung, but it was only about two <laughs> tracks on it. Like, and not that long ago, maybe about five years ago, I did a festival with my band, and we was on the same bill as um, it, um, what they call you know uh, Jeffro Toll. Yeah, <laughs> and they started off with. Um, living in the past which I think is fantastic you know mm-hmm. it's like take five but with words <laughs> yeah. so I the dressing room was just near the stage so I ran right down front I'm leaning over the barrier and I dug them doing that the only problem was was that they then when they finished they went straight into thick as a brick and I turned around thought I can't do this and the place had filled up and there was about <laughs> 10,000 people pointing me going just find that from the sex <laughs> <laughs> spotted yeah. Oh, where did like um go? You know, going back to um, you know, uh, sort of the pre-discovery time. What was the first concert you ever went to? I went to see because I got free tickets out of the Melody Maker, a band called Pentangle. Oh yeah, which at the Albert Hall. Yeah, and I went because they actually did the theme tune, the theme tune for a TV show called Take Three Girls, with about three girls sort of moving to London and sort of living in a bedsit. And it was, I think it was Basket of Light. Da, 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 da. So I went to that. And, um, but I'm glad I did because looking back, it was like Dave Mattox and Danny Thompson on bass and John Rambourne playing guitar and Jackie McShee singing. You know, so it was really quite a cool thing to go to. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, like later on with the Rich Kid, uh, Midge Urge would come in and sing with the Rich Kids, but he 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 was a Sex Pistols singer before that, right? Or audition for the Sex Pistols? No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't the Sex Pistols singer. But there was a bit of talk about him. Um, uh, Malcolm McLaren and Bernard Rose went on some trip up north to um, kind of check out second-hand clothes again, you know, going to warehouse and things, and went to Glasgow, and they had with them an amplifier that Steve Jones had got older somehow that was a bit too warm for London. I understand. And they went in there and tried to flog it and, and probably took one look at Malcolm and Bernard and thought, you know, this is when everybody, but everybody had long hair and flares. Yeah. Um, and Malcolm probably had sort of little had leather trousers on and a little sort of Paris you know Louis the 14th type shoes I can see him now <laughs> and they didn't entertain him but while they was in there this other bloke was in there and he heard what was going on and when they came out he was interested in this amplifier but that guy was Midge and Midge actually had a quiff at the time he looked like something out of um uh, happy days yep and and they got his number and this was when we were deciding to start to look for a singer and they came back to london and malcolm gave me his number and i actually called him up and spoke to his mum and she said can i help you and i said yeah i'm trying to get hold of midge and she shouted up the stairs she went hey wee jimmy there's somebody from london wants to speak to you so i spoke to him and i said we we're looking for a singer would you be interested in coming down and he said Thanks, but no thanks. I'm doing this project that looks like he's going to take off. And um, I'll stick with that. And the project he was going to do was Slick. Yeah. Which had a number one single and a top ten one. And they were like a teeny bop kind of band, but they had very good intros. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was called the, um, instead of the chinny chap sound, it was the, what was the bloke, the Martin... Gouda sound or something like that. Bill Martin was a, like a publisher of the songs and some other bloke. Oh, he did Bay City Roller stuff. Or... Yeah, Martin Coulter. Okay. So, uh, Martin Coulter, but not Martin Coulter. It's two people, Bill Martin and somebody Coulter. Anyway, he did that. When I was getting the Richards together, I tried out everybody, everybody who might have been a singer in London. It, it didn't kind of cut it. And I was, you know, I had a record deal on the table and management coming down. I thought, what am I going to do? Anyway, I was at a rehearsal place and I was in the West End where we were rehearsing and I'm a bit kind of flummoxed. I went and flicked through the racks in a record store and I found a slick record and they'd been and gone by then. I thought, I wonder what he's doing now. So I got my management to call up and try and track him down and then got Midge down, you know. But I knew darn well, that, well I'd like Midge's voice, he had a very distinctive voice, but I knew darn well that would put the cat amongst the pigeons with the punks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why that's why I did it, you know. After I left the Pistols, I didn't want to be in the second division Sex Pistols. I wanted to be seen and try and do something different. Well, that you know, like I, I love that Rich Kids record. It almost felt like that was like you kind of making, you know, from producer to musicians that kind of play on it. Like it almost like that's like a dream record. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, from what you were saying earlier on, a bit, a bit ahead of the curve. I think yeah. he's probably a year too soon. I, I, I like after record, you know, I think the record company, instead of pushing us to get the record out and capitalise on the punk thing, which we weren't really, they, they should have let us wait on it a bit more and, 
you know, if there was 12 songs like Ghost of Princes and Towers and Strange One and Marching Men, I think it would have been fantastic, but didn't quite work out like that. You know, and then we was getting a bit of a backlash from the punks, which kind of made me have a few beers more than I would have normally had, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there you go. But, but you know, we would do shows in Birmingham and you'd have Arthur Duran Duran in the front row. And then recently... We did a one-off Rich Kids gig last year for Viva La Rock Awards, and poor old Steve knew the lead guitarist is no longer with us, so Gary Camp stood in. Hmm. And he said, you know, we used to queue up and come and see you at the, um, you know, the Nashville or somewhere like that in London. And he said, you know what, Glenn? He said, me doing this. And this is after while he's still doing the O2 and stuff. Must have been what it was like for you playing in the faces, because he was a big fan. Yeah. So we affected those bands. Now, whether you want to claim credit for, for getting Duran Duran and <laughs> Spandau Ballet going is another matter. But. <laughs> well, I, I think it's funny with the Rich Kids because, like, you know, obviously the Sex Pistols is such, like, a nuclear explosion that this unbelievable band kind of gets eclipsed by it. Like you say, like, you know, you, you like half the record. I like the whole record. I think it, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's ahead of the curve because I think the punk thing, once it kind of settled a bit, that's when all the bands started taking that influence and doing, you know, other things with it. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, but I mean, another thing people mix, mix with the, miss with the rich kids is a, we had Mick Ronson producing it, which yeah. was a bit of a, a bit of a, um, a coup. And yeah. then he was a fantastic musician and a laugh as well. But also one of the things we used to listen to when he was doing gigs, it's like, you know, when Bowie put those four albums out, two by him, um, heroes and, um, low and then there's lust for life and the idiot you know little bowie really mm-hmm. you know that, i think he was the first band to ever put a harmonizer on the snare other than bowie you know because we we knew those records backwards yeah no you're right it's like uh it's 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 such a cool record because it does harken to that kind of glam stuff like it feels like much more of a like a glam record than a punk record but like it's as you're saying like it's you so it's got like a new spin on it Mm, well, that would be our day, you know. Were there, like, you mentioned, like, the punk kids kind of in a backlash. Were there any kind of the second wave bands that you did like? Uh, yeah. Um, who did I like? You know, sort of got a soft spot for Wire. Yeah. I liked, um, there was a band, there was a band called the T-Set. Uh, um, um, those bands, you know, and then people like the Gang of Four and, well, it's probably because I fancy the bass player, Sarah Lee, who joined them, <laughs> not in the beginning. Um, yeah, you know, Talking Heads, were they a punk band? Not really. I, I think um, Psycho Killer definitely. Like, I, that's the thing is, like, you're talking about, like, you know, punk is now codified into this really specific thing. But, you know, being that, you know, you're the people that invented it, like, it's everything. Like, it's all those influences go into it. Yeah, so. Yeah, there's loads of bands. I can't think of all off the top of my head. But even, you know, bands that are supposedly punk bands, bands like the Buzzcocks, you know, mm-hmm. they're totally different thing from the Pistols. You know, we always said we wanted to be bands more like us, but we didn't mean bands that sound exactly like us. It was just bands that took the ball and run with it a little bit, you know, and developed their own thing, which the Buzzcocks certainly did, you know. What about Coxbar? Like, there's that story where Malcolm went and actually saw them at one point. Who? Uh, Coxbar? Yeah. Coxbar? Um, I don't really know much about them. I, I think they're a bit of an oi band. And... 
Well, they're like another band that kind of pre like they, they their first tour was with the Small Faces, and they kind of predate everything as well. Like you know, they go back to seventy three. I think they kind of well, flew. I've I've kind of sort of missed them a little bit, but I do remember going on holiday to Ibiza, mm-hmm. and it was at the height of the disco thing. But one of the records I kept put playing on in front of this was in seventy eight, I think. I kept every bar you went into. They play all this sort of yes, sir, I can boogie stuff, and then. They'd have um, We Love You by Cox Barrow would come up. It was all a bit weird. That's the only thing I really know about them, you know. Uh, um, I also wanted to talk to you about the Spectres. I think that single's a phenomenal seven inch. Was there more with that band planned or what, like, you know, that is it just the seven inch that's the one sort of well, real? Well, we, we put out two singles and I don't know which one you listen to. There's... I actually have, I'm oh, sorry, I, I do have both, the black and white one and then the one that's kind of like a greenish. Um... Yeah, that's stories. Um, I wasn't so keen on that one, uh, but the one I like is, is our version of the Ray Davis song. The Strange Effect. So um, sick, that cover. Yeah, but you know who did that cover? There's a guy called Al McDowell, who was the first person to book the Sex Pistols, because he was at Central School of Art. He was the best man at Mall Wedding. And also, he went moved to Hollywood, and he became an artistic designer for films. Mm-hmm. He did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Fair and Loven in Las Vegas. He did the terminal. They actually designed and built a, a airport terminal for it. And he was over in London about a year and a half ago and called me up. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm at Pinewood. I said, what are you doing? He said, Star Wars 9. <laughs> and he was the bloke who did that cover and he did the Richfield's cover and all. And we actually set him up with um, a studio for Rockin' Russian Designs, who did quite a lot of stuff, you know. I got him the gig to do the Soldier album cover. Wow. And there's another guy you might have heard of, a guy called Neville Brody. He became very famous in the days of the Face magazine as a, um, a font designer. And he is now the principal of the Royal College of Art of London, but he was Al's T-boy. <laughs> It's amazing where these, like, you know, the cultural impact, you know, from... Well, like, yeah, but see, again, you know, these were people who would hang out at the Malcolm shop or part mm-hmm. of that coterie, mm-hmm. and I'm sort of more proud of being involved with the mates of and of the generation of the people who were in that scene, you know, like Al and photographers and Jamie Reed and fashion designers and things. You know, it, it was a very kind of... Um, intellectually lucrative period. You know, we were the pebble that was dropped in the pond and all these other people would have rippled. Well, and it's funny because it's like, it continues to be kind of that beacon for these interesting people. Like, you know, I've had everyone from Anthony Bourdain to Jack Black to all these people on this podcast and all of them were punks or identified at punks on some level at some point in their life. Like it continues, like even before, you know, as you're saying, like even before it was called punk, you know, it seemed to be like a magnet, yeah, whatever yeah, this is. Yeah, fair enough. But, uh, you know, there was always Edith Piaf and there was always Jack Brown and there was always Gene Vincent mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. there was always Frank Zappa. Well, perhaps he was a yippie as opposed to a hippie, <laughs> but really he was a punk. It's only a name and a haircut. It's an attitude, really. Yeah. And no. that's what I rail against when people say you're a punk. Well, no, I don't wear bondage trousers and have my safety pin in just exactly the right place. The only time I use a safety pin is if the zip and my fly is busted. Yeah, you well, know, but, yeah. 
Well, as you said, like in the beginning, it's, it's a media construct in that regard. Like what calling it a certain thing, like that was the media putting on it, but it's almost like, you know, that gave it a name, but it's like this energy, like you're saying that's existed, you know, perhaps since the dawn of art, maybe even. Yeah, hopefully. No, it's just kind of, well, I suppose what you could call a left field shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you talked about, uh, Gene Vincent. I got to ask you about that Sonny Vincent and the spite project. What a lineup, like gotta be one of the greatest bands ever assembled. Uh, right. Yeah. But we never actually met. We all did have it separately. Really? I actually, <laughs> yeah. I actually owe Sonny an email I have had for a long time, but I just keep missing out the thing. And I've got the record, but I haven't even heard it. It's funny. I like playing on things and all that, but I just do it. And then, you know, people want you to hear their things and I struggle to listen to my own stuff once I've done it. I like to live in the moment musically. I understand that. I definitely, definitely get it. But I like, you know, I love the testers, um, you know, Sonny Vincent's old band back in New York, back in the day. What was it like going to New York and kind of seeing how things were being taken up differently there or the things that were kind of the same? Cause you did go over to New York. The first time I went to New York, I was playing with Iggy Pop at the age of 23 and we did one show in Philadelphia at Hot Club. There's a like a warm up for the American tour. Some girl came backstage, disappeared into the bathroom with Jim, came out and said, has anybody got any chewing gum? And I thought, hmm, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and the next night, we um, we, we played uh, at the Palladium in New York, and it was Halloween. The cramp supported us. The whole audience was in Halloween costume, which in, back then in England we never really celebrated. We do a bit more now. And backstage was Debbie Harry dressed as a witch who gave me a peck on the cheek. <laughs> that was my first time in New York. Oh, and also, in the night off, I went to some art gallery exhibition. And I can't think, I went to eat at this place called the Puglia, which was down in Little Italy, where it was quite famous because the owner played the Hammond organ, you know. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> and I walked in, and there was Sylvain there. I never met him. And he said, hi, you know. Well. Then I went to this art gallery thing. And there were people like Ronnie Wood there. There was, um, who else was there? Uh, um, you know, we are Stardust, we are Gold. Joni Mitchell was there, trod on my foot accidentally, and I still out. I was at the night blinking out. And then I looked through the window, because, you know, I was outside having a glass of wine, looked through the window, and this bloke stuck his tongue out on me. And he, the guy who had the, the section near the window, these paintings on display, it was Commander Cody. Stuck his tongue out at me for looking through the window at him. And then as I was walking away, this guy came up to me and said, hey, come in the other way to go to the thing. He went, hey, I know you. And it was David Johansson. <laughs> so it's the first time in New York. I'm like, hmm. uh, that's, an, uh, that's an amazing uh, first experience when you get over there. Yeah. Well, another thing I want to talk to you about, because I think it's a phenomenal record, is that first solo record you did on Creation. Oh, you like that? Okay, oh, cool. I think it's such an underrated album. Uh, um, it must have been a weird time, though, to be on that label, I can imagine. Um, why was it a weird time? Well, because it, it seems like it would have been, uh, you know, like things were exploding, you know, and it, it feels like things would have, like, obviously Oasis was a thing, but they were already kind of going over to Sony, and it feels like that would have been towards the end of the label, seems like. Well, I hadn't had that much dealings with creation, so what was going on, I didn't really know. I know I bumped, in 1975, I bumped into 
and got introduced to Alan McGee at a creation gig. And he said, oh, I'd like to do a record with you. And as that happened, I didn't quite know what I was doing. And then I started recording some stuff, so I played him some stuff. And he sort of helped me finish off the record, which we put out. But it was originally supposed to come out in 75. And there was when I made that record, there was no kind of wind of a Sex Pistols tour. And that only really came together really at the beginning of 96. Okay. And my record was supposed to have been out by then, but then Alan got wind of the fact the Pistols thing was going to come out, and I, then the record got put back a bit. Then it came out at the same time as the Pistols thing, and it just looked like I was cashing in on it. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't. I'd already made that record, and I didn't get to tour it, and, and then the Pistols management didn't want me to do stuff because they thought it upset the thing. So it got kind of lost, really, you know. But yes, I think there's some good songs on it. Oh, I think there's some great songs on it. As you're saying, it's like a... It's a record that, you know, given the right kind of uh, attention put on it by a label and being able to support it, like, I really do think it could have, you know, like, it sounds like something that would have, you know, found an audience, in, especially in America, like, it, uh, for the time, too. Um, well, well, thanks, yeah. It's just having trouble with older blokes like me. Is they people, people put you in a, in a cubbyhole, <laughs> and, and they... So try and lock the door, you know, in that cubbyhole that you're in, and there you go. But my mission in life is to break out, which I'm slowly, slowly, slowly beginning to do, you know. But I think in a punk kind of way, you know, everything I do these days, I pretty much set up most of it myself, you know. Um, You know, I've got a great band together. I've got fucking Al Slick playing with me. You know, the last record, I had Slim Jim on it as well. Mm Mm-hmm. All off my own back. If somebody just got behind you just a little bit, I could be putting a smile on the faces to the masses with my brand of rock and roll. You know, and I'm getting there, but it's blinking hard work. I guess, like over the years, you know, you've 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 been in so many different projects and been part of so many different scenes. Like, are there any bands that you know? Well, you... well, yes, I have, but I, I think that the yardstick. You know, some people go, "Oh, you've been in so many bands." You know. It's, it's, as though it's kind of like it's because things don't work out. But the one thing that's done, I've done through all of that is I've been a songwriter, I've written the songs, and it's kind of my music. Yeah, of course. Not totally, you know, with the input of the other musicians you play with, but that's that's the constant factor with it all. Yeah, no, so, absolutely. So, yes, you know, and now I could just go out as Glenn Matlock because I've learned if you think up the name of a band, and put it out, they, you know, promoters and things put X this and next that all over, and it looks like a bar band, so I might as well just call myself <laughs> playing that one. Yeah, no, I understand. And it, it, but, I mean, like, I meant that not in a disparaging way, but like you're saying, like, you're someone who's always tried to, it seemed like, break out, you know? Like, it's not like, you know, you are ever seemed like you're trying to cash in on, you know, this nuclear explosion that you helped orchestrate. Like, you're someone who you know, like existed as a music fan before that and, and has constantly tried to, from a fan's perspective, exist outside um, of that since. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm just, I'm, first and foremost, I see myself as a songwriter. Everything I do is to kind of get those songs across to as many people in the public as possible. I don't care if people don't like my stuff. What is very golden is when you put something out and because it hasn't had enough promo behind it, that people don't get to hear that you've got something out, you know, that that's kind of going, but I'm a songwriter. That's what I do. Yeah. Well, that's what I think. That's why I love that solo record. Cause you are a songwriter and that really comes off on those songs. Like there's yeah. like a, a sense of melody and a sense of like, 
song structure that like, you know, I can, you're, you're like one of these people that like an auteur kind of songwriter, you can hear your stuff no matter what it sounds like and from the rich yeah. kids, pistols to, to the solo stuff. All right. Well, thanks. But actually we've been, um, I'll be back. I think that's on that album. We've actually been doing hot water. That's on that album. Isn't it, I think. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Which sounds good. But the reason I did that, you know, you play with people and the music takes on a certain kind of way about things, the way people play. But the way L plays, you know, it's kind of quite bluesy these days. I thought, oh, it'd be quite good if we did hot water. And it works great, you know. So there you go. Well, this has been amazing to get a chance to talk to you like this. And would you at some point down the line in the future come back for a part two? For sure, yeah. yeah. Perhaps when, because you don't notice and maybe you should sort of check out the album i got out at the moment good to go um which has got some great stuff in it but i've actually got a new album in the can which is being mixed in new york right this very minute and hopefully that will be out later on this year possibly in the fall or autumn as we say so perhaps that would be a good time to to re-pick up the baton the door is always open all right then cool Thank you, Glenn, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Glenn will be back for a part two. Unfortunately, it won't be in the near future that he's going to be going on tour right now because as with every other tour in the world, it is postponed until uh, further announcement. So we'll just leave it at that for now. But you can, in the meantime, check out all the incredible stuff that Glenn has done. Uh, Glenn has put out an unbelievable array of solo records, a bunch of different styles. He actually did a Rockabilly record last year that I'm trying to remember the name of. It's got a... A, a very long title. It, it's the uh, it's uh, the teenage de- juvenile delinquent rock and roll horror beach party, and it's like kind of a rockabilly vibe record. Also, definitely check out who's he think he is when he's at home. I think that's what it's called on Creation Records. A phenomenal solo record. God, this guy's put out a lot of stuff. You know, I think I, I I've always been a big fan of all the stuff that Glenn Matlock does, but I think for a lot of people, they kind of get caught up on that Sex Pistols record, which don't get me wrong, one of the greatest records of all time, one of the greatest run of singles of all time, but Glenn Matlock has a lot more to discover out there. So, thank you for coming on the show, Glenn. Speaking of coming on the show, next week on the show, got a, got another huge guest. We're going to keep it England next week. Next week on the show, the big homie, Anna Calvi, will be on the show. Anna Calvi's one of my favorite I don't know. I don't want to say recent because she's been around for a while now, but modernish songwriter. She's put out some incredible records. Continues to put out unbelievable records. Uh, yeah, and a huge thrill and a punk rocker. That's why I do this thing because it turns out that all the music I like somehow connects back to punk rock. Go figure. Go figure. All right, that's it. I'm going to be putting out so many episodes of this thing, constantly putting out episodes for the next little while. I think we're going to have two coming out next week, maybe three. And then the week after WrestleMania week, I'm going to have three wrestling episodes dropping leading up to the, the most punk wrestling interview ever, at least since Robbie Brookside. But I don't know this one, this one blew my mind in a, in a huge way, huge way. That's all coming up in two weeks. That's it. I'm going to keep doing this thing. I'm going to be doing some other things like a, you know, like a, an evening kind of check-in talk showy thing too that I'm working on. So we're going to be making content. So, you know, stay safe, stay healthy, everyone, and uh, stay inside and we'll get through this and I will see you on the next episode.
love you. Sign your organ donor cards and make something creative. It'll help take your mind off everything. I promise you. All right. See you next week. Love you. I keep saying next week. I mean, next episode. I'm, I'm stuck in a habit that way. Next episode. See you next episode.